It's a blessing to be here today and to have you here joining us for service. We want to remember in a prayer time to uh, pray for those who are not with us. Uh, special note for Brian and Heidi in, in Indiana preaching there. So we want to pray for God's word going out there. And I also want to continue uh, to pray, as we mentioned earlier, for Mac and Jackie who are doing okay. They were in a car accident on their way to church this morning. So we want to pray that God will just watch over them and uh, the issues that are raised with that. But they are doing fine. We praise God for that. No, no bodily damage at all. Our scripture reading this morning, if you would grab your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 41. Psalm 41. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers have Bibles available. You can grab one. Just raise your hand. They'll bring one right to you. Psalm 41. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we look over and listen to the reading of God's word. Psalm 41 in its entirety. So please stand with me in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O oh Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's bow for a moment of prayer this morning. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for each person that's here. Thank you for this time of worship. We pray, Lord, that it might be sacred, that it might be special, set aside to bring glory to you, that we will reserve your right to receive glory. We will not steal any glory for ourselves in how we conduct our worship and our time and our focus on you. So we pray that, that you would just cleanse our hearts so we can't do that with impure thoughts. We pray that you would direct our thinking on your word and on your truth. Allow us to gleam from your word what you'd have us to, to know and how you'd have us to be challenged, encouraged, admonished, and directed in your purpose and your will. So we pray for those things today. We pray for your people, Lord, as we mentioned, those who aren't here especially, those who are among the sick and afflicted. Um, we just think of, of those who are dealing with uh, illnesses, some cases cancer sister sister uh, Lotus Spears we pray for her and for uh, just your helping her through the health and the challenge that she faces for many Kathy and her challenge Lord that you would encourage her heart um, may you remind her of your presence and of your people and their prayers for her we pray for my dad as well as he uh, continues to suffer in, in his ailment that you will just watch over and be with him and we pray for sister Beverly as she recovers um, from um, 
her surgery, that you would watch over, be with, and protect her, that you'd be her husband as well, with Charles, that you would uh, uh, continue to use him as you have and encourage his heart, that he might continue to be an encouragement to others. Uh, we thank you for your protection of, of, um, of Mac and Jackie on, and their travel on their way here, that you protected them from injury in this accident. And we pray, Lord, that you just take care of every detail in their regard. We pray also for Brother Lawrence, who's not here today and just suffering from just an infection in his eye. We pray that you'll watch over, protect, and bless, and heal him. And so, Lord, there's many that are on our list for prayer and concern, and we know, Lord, that you can, you can handle them all. And uh, we thank you for that. We pray that you would just um, cause us to put our trust in you and not be discouraged as we go through the various challenges of this life, that you are there for us, you maintain, you sustain, you watch over, you protect, and you are our hope, and we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would just bless your word as it goes out this morning. Brian and Heidi, as they preach, as he preaches in Indiana, and that you would bless their ministry of music as well. That you would bless uh, this church as we hear your word, that we might apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And please be seated as our choir comes for special music before the preaching of God's word this morning. Until the veil was torn The moment that hope was born And sin was Psalm 41 is our text this morning. Let's open our Bibles there. And let's browse through this portion of God's Word. It's always interesting to me and fascinating to go through Psalms um, because Psalms expresses the wealth of human emotion and experience. And so it's something that each of us can relate to. The psalmist is a human being writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit, but it's expressing his, his challenges, his experiences, and through all those experiences of life, he's expressing praise to God. Ultimately, it's pointing him to God. It, 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 Psalm shows that life experiences of trusting God in a sinful and fallen world. So it, 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 I, I like that point of view because it shows us that we don't live in a perfect environment. And we don't praise God just because things are going well for us. We don't praise God in order to get a blessing. We don't praise God uh, because uh, our day has gone good. We praise God, Psalms reveals, because Psalms reveals this to us. It reveals truth about life in this fallen world, that it's a mess. People often ask me, you know, uh, how's life treating you? I usually tell them, pretty bad, but God is good. <laughs> I was at a pastor's meeting this past week, and he said, how you doing? I said, I'm hanging on by a thread, but thank God it's God's thread. He's the one that's holding me. If it was my thread, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> if it was my strength I was hanging by, I'd be in trouble. Psalm expresses some of the challenges that we face in this life, living in a wicked, sinful, fallen world. Because that's the world that we live in. But what it does is it points out truths about God, truths about ourselves, truths about the evilness around us. And in pointing those truths out, it leads us, it presses us to run to God. 
so watch how the psalmist does this in this chapter in Psalm 41. Let's just take a moment. It's only 13 verses, so let's just take another moment and read it again. One thing I do when I want to study God's Word, um, people ask, you know, how do you study God's Word? What, what's your main tool? Well, for believers, in fact, I, I, I shouldn't even preference that, unbelievers don't understand God's Word. That's not that they aren't intelligent and don't know language and can't decipher what language means and what the meanings of words are. They, they do that fine. But they don't understand God's thought and his ways and what he's saying and why he's saying it and what he means. It's just right over the head. And so it was for us before we knew the Lord. So the main thing that contributes to us understanding the Word of God, first of all, is relationship with the writer. Somebody writes something in a personal way, if you don't know them, you don't know what they're talking about. So it's a relationship with God. And through the other thing that does that, does help us understand, is with the relationship with God, when a person is born again, God gives them his Holy Spirit to live within them. The Holy Spirit is not a thing, and it, he, is a person. The Holy Spirit lives within the believers, and the, and, and the Holy Spirit, what he does is he helps us understand the Word of God. And so if you don't understand the Word of God, you need to ask, do you have a relationship with the Lord? And is the Holy Spirit your helper to help you understand? Then, of course, God gives us human helpers to lead us and to help us in the truth. The Holy Spirit is working in your heart, but he identifies, he helps you identify what I say as truly truth and word of God. Or he tells, spit that out. Mm -mm, that ain't right. He'll, he'll do that and he'll help you. He'll use human teachers as well. That's why we read the psalm. The, psalm, the psalmist, oftentimes, is, is an individual like David. He's helping us understand the ways of God. Look what he says here in verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Let me, let me back up. I said one of the things that I do to help understand the word of God is I read it over and over and over again. So that's why we're going to read it again. So follow along with me as I read this chapter again. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on a sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So the psalmist takes us through common human experiences and shows us how we are to work through those experiences because of our relationship and knowing the Lord. And in doing so, he points us to God and to his salvation and points us to God's salvation who is the Lord Jesus Christ.
He starts off in the first three to four verses talking about godly character traits. And I'm going to mention three of them. It's not only in the first three verses, but throughout the chapter. We're going to see three godly traits that he focuses on here. And we'll see what they mean and the significance and importance of them in our walk in this life, in our walk with the Lord. The first one is graciousness. Graciousness is the focus of the whole chapter. He says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In other words, he's saying, you and I, as God's people, needs to be, we need to be gracious towards the poor. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. So graciousness is one of those truths or, or godly character traits that he's going to talk about. And I'm going to mention the other two and then talk about them in depth as we get to them. There's three, graciousness humility, and integrity. Graciousness, humility, and integrity. We're going to talk about all three of those godly character traits and how they impact our lives. It's interesting in the, uh, in the adult Sunday school class, we were talking about the, the, uh, 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 the characteristics of of. God's men, uh, pastors, and, and, and what their qualifications should be in Titus chapter 1. And we see all these three things there too. You ought to be hospitable. Hospitable, talk about being gracious to others. Talk about his integrity, <laughs> that what he does at home needs to be consistent with what he does publicly. That there's no you know, hidden uh, uh, skeletons in his closet, so to speak. You're not going to get any surprises when you see him uh, uh, privately than when you see him publicly. Talks about humility and how he's a servant of the Lord. But let's talk about those traits in, in us as the people of God. He says a couple things here um, that, that we ought to be gracious to the poor. In other words, we ought to consider the poor. What does it mean? What does graciousness mean? It comes from the word grace, and, and we know what grace means. Uh, we know a, a running definition. It's, it's unmerited favor. In other words, something that is it's a blessing that we don't deserve. And you can't say that enough because it has to sink in. It's something that is given to us that we can't pay for and we don't deserve. That, that's hard for our society today because we have this entitlement mentality. You know, it's, it starts with, brother, you got a spare quarter to, what you mean you can't give me nothing? I mean, it's intimidation, like, you bet, you walking out of this store, so I know you got some money, you went in there with something, when you come out, you better give me something. I just refuse to be intimidated by that. I walk right past them and say, no, you, there's places that, that, that will help you other than begging in public. But God does says, let's be gracious to the poor. How can we be gracious to the poor? We can be that. It says grace means this, this something that we are given and it's undeserved. And you can't talk about grace. It's impossible to, to rightly understand grace without reference and understanding of God. Because grace starts with God. We deal with each other in terms of merit. What do we owe each other? And how ought we to treat one another? I mean, we say, hey, brother, don't you think I deserve more respect than that? <laughs> we demand those kind of things. We deserve, we've earned that right. But with God, we haven't earned anything. We haven't earned anything. We have no demand that we can put on God. You have to treat me this way because... He is God. He is sovereign. We are, he is holy. We are sinful. There is nothing that we can demand from God. And so grace is something that we receive that we don't deserve. We can't 
demand and command that he gives it to us. Graciousness, then, is a willingness to give or extend to someone something they don't deserve. A willingness to give or extend to someone something they don't deserve. Let me give you an illustration of, of graciousness. David, who was a writer of many of the Psalms, if you remember his life, there was a time when God favored David and said, you are going to be king. Now, before he was king, he was under the household of the, the present king who was Saul. And when, when God made it known that David was going to be king, in other words, when God began to favor David, guess who hated him? Saul hated him. And I don't use the word hatred lightly. Saul despised him so much that he wanted to kill him and made every attempt to kill him. Not to just do him harm, but to kill him. And so David had to run away from Saul. Can you imagine being hunted down by the king of the land? This ain't just, you know, somebody you grew up with who's the same level as you, who don't like you, and every, every once in a while you run, around, you run into him at the playground. This is somebody who has command of all authority in the land and can send everyone he has under him after you. That's what Saul did. God is gracious to David, and he protected him. And while God was protecting David, Saul and a band of his soldiers were hunting down David like a beast, like an animal. And in the middle of this hunt, they went into a cave and rested for the night and fell asleep. David found them in that cave, snuck into the cave, took Saul's own personal spear and left the cave, went up on a high cliff and called out and says, hey, how come y'all didn't protect the king? They woke up like, who is that? Oh, that's David. What is he talking about? He said, hey, look here. Ain't this the king's stuff? <laughs> he said, I could have killed him. I could have killed him, but I didn't. David was gracious to spare Saul's life when Saul deserved death. Saul was an enemy without any proper motivation and had hunted and tried to kill David several times and now David finds him unprotected and he could have killed him. But because David respected God and that God had set Saul as leader, David refused to take Saul out by his own hands. He says, God's going to do it at the right time. And so he extended to Saul grace. Saul didn't deserve any of that. But he extended to him grace. So that was graciousness. Look at it in verse 1. He says a couple things about this graciousness. Is that the one who is gracious will be blessed. How will he be blessed? God will deliver him because of his graciousness to others. Or not because of his graciousness to others, but, but he will deliver him as he is gracious to others. Remember in, 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 in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches us to pray, Forgive those who have sinned against you, and your heavenly Father will forgive you. He says, as you do, God extends to you. That's not that you're earning this, but God is saying, I want you to practice this and experience my forgiveness. If you refuse to do that, then I'm not going to give you the grace that comes from me. He says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do, not, you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. So God blesses those who are gracious. 
he goes on. It also teaches us that we are gracious. Why? Because God is gracious to us. God has extended something to us that we do not deserve. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in fact, we can turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1 is a, is a principle of our Christian character, what that Christian character is based on. says in verse 12, sorry, verse 14, it says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And in verse 16, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, God's characteristics ought to be mirrored in our lives. Because God is holy, his people ought to live and, and look like him. God is gracious, then God's people, in fact, ought to be gracious in their living, in their doing. And so in Psalm 41, he's, he's saying the principle for being gracious is because God is gracious to us. Because God is gracious, we ought to be like him. The word Christian means to be like Christ. It literally means little Christ. And so I ought to be living like Jesus is. I ought to display his kind of character in my life. And so the psalmist is speaking of that. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. He is being like God because God has considered him. God has protected him. God has blessed him. God has protected him from his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. When you look at verse 4, we talk about the word being gracious as a key in this chapter, verse 4, as for me, I said, oh, Lord, be gracious to me. It's a plea. It's begging. It's pleading with God to be gracious. It's not a demand. There's no way we can demand God to do anything, but he's praying, oh, Lord, be gracious to me. And then the second word in our character trait comes out, that word of humility. He says, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. First of all, you notice that grace has nothing to do with what we deserve because the psalmist says in the same sentence he asked for God's grace, he says, I know I don't deserve it. I've sinned against you. So how is it that the psalmist who sins can also ask God for grace? He knows the character of God. He knows his own character and he is humble about that. In fact, so let's talk about this definition. What is humility? The common view of humility is that we have a modest assessment of ourselves. That's the common view of humility. So if you say, man, I like those shoes you wear. Oh, man, it ain't nothing. I picked these up for a little or nothing. They, you know, instead, so we have a modest view of our, ourselves. You say, man, you really taught that lesson. Oh, man, that, 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 that wasn't really nothing. I, I didn't do much, you know. I just threw a little something together. Man, you cooked a, a mean meal. That was really great cooking. Oh, no, it wasn't nothing, man. I just warmed something up, you know, threw it together. You know? And so that, that's, that's a, a common view of humility is what we call a modest view or modest opinion of ourselves. It's a modest assessment of self. That's my definition. But you ring it, you, you follow it out, you see it to be true. That's the common view. That's not the actual view of what humility is. Here's what humility, what I call a corrected view. This is, again, my definition, so you can write it down and test it out. Corrected view of humility is a confident, true assessment of self with a willingness to be patient and gracious to others who don't get it. In other words, humility doesn't say I'm nothing when you know you are. 
When you know you have certain abilities and gifts and someone compliments or, or speaks to that, you don't deny it. That's just lying. But humility is a true assessment of self. And I'm going to explain that a little later too. Uh, a true assessment of self with a willingness to be patient and gracious to others who don't get it. What do I mean by true and a confident assessment of self? Well, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And so I act before God humbly. That's what the psalmist says. He says, be gracious to me. I have sinned against you. He's humble in acknowledging his sin. But humility doesn't stop there. What else does he know that he can even ask God to be gracious? Well, let me put it in today's biblical language. I am a redeemed, born-again child of God. And I can't deny that. Do you say I'm not redeemed? You're a liar. Because God says I am. You say I'm not born again. You are lying because God says that I am. You say, or anyone says, I'm not a child of God, they're lie, because God says that I am. And I will never deny what God says is true, and denying the truth is not humility. But what it does is, it's a confident, true assessment of self with a willingness to be patient and gracious to others who don't get it. We have a lot of folks, as we live in this Christian walk, who says, hey, you think you a child of God. You think you all that. And what are you supposed to say? Oh, no, I'm not. I'm just a wicked sinner. Now you say, I was a sinner, and I've been saved by the grace of God. I am confident in who I am. But here's humility. I'm patient, <laughs> how did I write it here? <laughs> With patient and gracious to others who don't get it. <laughs> let, 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 me, let me flesh that out. First in my life, for some 20 years I have worked as a bus driver in the school bus system. And I've been treated with contempt by students who are on their way to get their education. They ain't got a high school diploma. They ain't got nothing yet. But they're on their way to get their education. And I have successfully completed education that most of their teachers and even their principals don't have. Now, you say that's bragging. That's just fact. But they treat me with contempt because I'm just just a bus driver, driving in the hood, curse at you, swear at you, want to fight you, everything else. Humility says, I know who I am. And I ain't got to tell you, I've never told a student that. So I have the patience and the graciousness to bear with those who don't know. <laughs> they don't get it yet. They don't know who I am, so I don't keep reminding them of who I am. Don't you dare talk to me. I'm listening. They don't care. They do not care. But it's the humility that says, I know who I am, and I'm gracious and patient with those who don't get it. Let me give you a biblical example of that. It's all over Scripture. Jesus himself walked in this world, took on human flesh. He preached and discussed and even argued with people who didn't know who he was. In fact, swore up and down he was the exact opposite of who he was, and he patiently bore with them. That's humility. To say, you don't know who I am, you don't know what I can do, but I'm patient with you. <laughs> Even on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
He was humble. He did not display his glory, nor did he display his power at that time. He hung on the cross in humility. Now some, I would imagine there were some who witnessed his crucifixion, who joined in the crowd in ridiculing him. And if you're truly the, the man of God, if you truly are the Christ, come down from there. Get down from the cross if you all that. If I was him, I'd be thinking, wait for the day. You're going to see that. But among that crowd, I would, I would imagine there are some who later came to know Jesus and to know who he truly was. And in his humility, he allowed himself to be disgraced and treated with contempt because they didn't understand. They didn't get who he was and who he is. Humility. Humility allows a psalmist to say, God, be gracious to me. He says it in verse 4. He says it again in verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Gracious. He's, he's pleading to God's grace. Not, Lord, you owe me this. I've done all this for you. You got to come through for me. We can't appeal to God on that, on that basis. He appeals to God on his graciousness because I have sinned against you, he says in verse 4. So we see graciousness. We see humility. As we mentioned, who is that pictured? And none greater than is pictured in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the Pharisees who argued that Jesus cast out demons because he was the prince of demons? And Jesus patiently enduring that ridicule and that criticism, even though as the Pharisees spread this, this is spreading out to the crowd and more and more people are, are listening to this and taking note of that. Jesus doesn't, doesn't try to correct everything that's said. He, in his humble way, he knows who he is. And he endures the people who don't get it. You know, he's still doing that today. Sometimes I pray, I, I wish, and then you see this in the psalmist, Lord, why don't you just get them? Now, I forget, I used to be the them. I quickly forget that. I used to be to them. But I'd be praying, Lord, why, why, don't you just, why don't you just call it today? Why don't you just end your patience and just wipe this stuff out? But in God's grace, he is humble. And he endures the foolishness that goes on. Because God endures this foolishness, his people cry out to him and say things like they said in, in Revelation, Lord, how long? How long will we live in this wicked, sinful world and endure people treating us in ways that, that they shouldn't treat us? Look what the psalmist says in, in 41. He, he said, I got some real enemies. Verse 5, my enemies say of me in malice, when will he die? And his name perish. What could he have possibly done to deserve death? He did not deserve that. The psalmist is right. He says, the, the, the righteous often go through challenges of where they are mistreated. Now, now here's where we, we need to understand, because when we preach the word of God, we're not just giving a commercial saying, come to God, love God, and everything in your life will, will go great. Right, right away, you'll have a bank account and credit cards. You'll be able to charge. You'll be able to get a job. You'll be able to uh, buy a car. You'll be able to get an apartment. You'll live lavishly. You'll have all this stuff. L listen, we, we can't sell 
Christianity like that. It's not true. What happens is when you turn to Christ, you belong to the group now that everybody hates. Now, the world won't admit that they hate us. But look at their leader. Remember we talked last week about the enemy of God's people. The, 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 the wolf that desires to, to, to destroy the sheep. You become part of that group. But like that group, you learn to rely on the protection and the blessing of God. And so he says, my enemies, verse 5, say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? So he starts with his enemies. Then he talks about people in general. He says, and when one comes to see me, these are folks that, get, that know you now. They call themselves friends. One comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. In other words, he comes saying, talking like he all cool and, and he's all good with me. He goes out spreading gossip and stuff that ain't even true. Ever been treated like that? <laughs> if I ask you today, have you ever been wrongly treated in a way you did not deserve? All of us will say, amen, preacher. I raise my hand. I, 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 I know that's true in my life. It's saying when you live in a wicked, fallen world, and, 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 and especially when you identify with God and God's people, you will be mistreated. You'll be wrongly treated. Jesus was, and we can expect to be as well. You say, well, preacher, what's the encouragement in that? <laughs> Well, first, the encouragement is expected, so you're not surprised by it, and then noted that, hey, that's how they treated Jesus. And then also this, here's the encouragement in the psalm, you can fall in the hands of God. You can place yourself in his hands, and he does care, and he does protect. He says, he says, He's explaining this. He's expressing this to God. Verse 5, my enemy saith me in malice, when will he die? His name perish. When one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. You ever had gossip going about you? You know, when I was growing up, it was just simple mouth-to-mouth -mouth gossip. Now it's all on the Internet. Stuff that can't be erased that sometimes can't be ignored, is exploded and, and, and so many people can see it and hear. How can you erase the damage that comes from that? If you spend your time trying to do that, you, 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 you are spinning your wheels. What should you do? He cries out to God is what he does. He cries out to God. Verse 8, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. They're taking bets on how long he's going to survive. You ever have that? I've had that. People betting on how long you're going to keep your job, right? He's going to be gone. He's going to be out of here. Not because he doesn't do a good job, but because they have slotted him to be out for whatever reason. They're waging. They're taking bets. How long are you going to make it? He said that's how he was treated. Verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate, he, who ate my bread has lifted his hail against me. It's saying those close by can often bring the greatest harm. You've been treated like that before, you can say amen. If you, if, if, if you know what that feels like, then you know a common human experience. In fact, this goes farther than that. You will recognize this. Those who, 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 who are familiar with Scripture know that this is what Jesus said when he was betrayed. We do communion on the first Sunday in the evening at this church, and communion reminds us it was instituted back 
in what was called the Last Supper, which was a Passover supper that Jesus took. But it was at that meal, it was a meal that should be remembering God's deliverance of his people in the Passover. But it's that meal that the one who was supposed to be close to Jesus, a disciple personally taught by Jesus, walked around, lived with Jesus. This Judas, living right with Jesus, is the one that betrayed him. And it was at that meal that Jesus acknowledged that he knew who this was. He says, this one who ate with me, one who called himself a friend. He is the one that hated me so much that he took money that he can point me out to be killed. What a friend that is. He goes to verse 10. So what do you do? What do you do when you're facing the wickedness of this world? What are believers to do when they recognize that just for walking with God, they're often going to go through hardships and be mistreated? What does he say? Verse 10. But you. Oh, Lord. He says, I'm disappointed sometimes by literally by every human relationship that I've had has brought nothing but disappointment. And that can happen. That can happen in our lives, that the people who are closest to us or should be there for support somehow fall away. Either they fall away or they, in this case, just are utter enemies. They're no good. We live in a wicked, fallen world. We don't live in a, in, in, in a fairy tale existence. But I thank God for the psalmist. He's letting us know that God is working in a wicked, fallen world. I thank God that the gospel works in Milwaukee. Amen? Amen. You, know, you don't have to live in the outskirts to see the promises of God and to see the blessing of God. You see, what, what the, the, the wicked lie that's been told to America is that you need to live the American dream. I remember in 2004 going over to South America, South Africa, I'm sorry, uh, and, and, and on a missions trip there. There were people in South Africa that they were just taking in this prosperity gospel teaching that said, hey, if you're a Christian, you ought to have the bling bling on and the money. And when you become a Christian, you're going to get all that. And they, they wanted to, 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 to embrace that as truth and reality, uh, the real believers over there knew better than we did that, hey, living for Christ is a challenge and it will cost you something. But it's well worth it. It's well worth it in this world and it's well worth it in the world to come. In eternity to come, we will not, th those who have, have trusted Christ will have absolutely no regrets. Will they have a difficult time here? Yes. But will they have any regrets about committing their lives to Christ? No. Why? It's because they know the real truth. That all the riches in this world are, are worth absolutely nothing in eternity. And Christ is worth absolutely everything in eternity and in this life. So what he does is, what does, what, what does the psalmist do that he challenges and encourages us to do in the midst of the, the atrocities, the, the harm, the, the wickedness, the hurt, the violence, all the things that can, can be committed against us in the midst of that we run to, we turn to God. We turn to God. We don't turn to medicine. We don't turn to drugs. We don't turn to psychiatrists. We don't turn to the joy of riches. We don't turn to to comedy and laughter and partying, we turn to God. And reality in God is more and better than all of those things. We find joy in God. We find healing in God. We find health in God. We find riches in God. We find peace in God. 
So he says in verse 10, but you, O Lord, he runs to God, be gracious to me and raise me up. Help me, God, where I am. And I like, I have to admit, I like the last part of that verse. Did you get that? Because it seems so inconsistent, doesn't it? It catches you off guard. He says in verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Raise me up. Why? I can get them back. So I can repay them. He said, is that consistent with Christian thought? Let me tell you why it is. Let me tell you why it is. The Christian who suffers today because of wickedness against him, who suffers in a wicked world, who suffers in a sinful fallen world, and all the stuff that's happened is saying, Lord, I can't wait till you set things straight and get things right and put it as it should be. Jesus is coming to set things straight and put things right. I talked about humility with Christ. And I talked about the honesty to know and be confident in who you are. Jesus knew that he came to this world as a lamb and to be the lamb of God that is sacrificed, that is put to death. But he also knows that's not the, that's only half of the picture that explains who he is. He's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. In other words, he's a lion that conquers his enemies. How do you conquer your enemy? You defeat them. You destroy them. You kill them. <laughs> Jesus is the lion that is coming, and he will defeat and destroy his enemies. So the believer is saying, I can't wait till that happens. I can't wait to say, I told you so. I told you trusting in God will put me on the right team. I told you that all my walk, all my sacrifices, all the things that I did for, for God are worthwhile. And God is going to be and do all that he says he will be and do. Now, the truth is that I want to deliver that punch sometimes, and God won't, won't always allow me to deliver that punch, but Christ is going to deliver it for me. It's going to be even better. <laughs> it's going to be even better. You read in Revelation, you realize that Christ comes, and with the sword, it's pictured this way. You know, Revelation is very, is, is a very graphic and it has pictures to show us what happens. It says, the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, he destroys or defeats his enemy. And, and he's saying he is going to defeat them. And he, he can simply speak his word to, to cause them to be destroyed. But the fact is, he's going to defeat them. And that's the truth. You know, today's environment, we don't like to talk of this Christian walk as a warfare. And we don't talk, like to talk about violence, and we don't like to talk about killing, and, and, and we think that that gives a, a right for people to be violent against each other and, and give them the wrong message. But the truth is, is that you will not have peace unless you have might and power. And because of the wickedness of evil... Satan is not giving up anything. He's got to be defeated. It's got to be taken from him. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. The Christian cries out for revenge. There's nothing wrong with revenge. The Bible simply says, don't you do it. God is going to do it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I love that verse because it, it says vengeance belongs to God. It doesn't say, don't worry about it. He'll never do it. He says he will repay. He will repay. And so we find solace. We have comforted in the fact that God is going to set things right. There's a warning there. You better be on the right side. 
I can say that confidently. I don't have to squirm or, or worry because, you know, right now we, 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 we don't seem like we're, we're the confident side. We don't seem like, like we're winning in this battle. But God says we're going to win. We're the minority here on earth. Most people do not trust God. Most people do not believe in God. Even in America, in this city, it's not a majority of people who love God. Most don't. But I'm still confident. <laughs> the Bible says the God before us, who can be against us? God is going to do all that he says that he is going to do. So he says this in verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. He won't be doing no victory dance. <clears throat> Why? You have upheld me. And then he uses that third term, because of my integrity. It's interesting that he speaks of integrity here. He said we had three character traits that we'd look at. Graciousness was one. Humility was another. <coughs> integrity is the third. The word integrity, it means to be whole or sound. In structural ways, we talk about structural integrity. I could, I could say that this pulpit is strong. It's going to hold what it's meant to hold. I put on the things there and it holds them. It's not falling apart. I would say this stage has structural integrity that when I stand on it, it's not caving in. We could say this building, this roof and so forth has integrity because it's sound. It's built and there's no weaknesses in it where it's going to come crashing in. That's a structural integrity. But we, we're talking and that, that same thought goes then into character integrity. Illustration is this. There's no holy Sunday in our living. In other words, we act on Saturday night the same way we act on Sunday morning. That's what's called integrity. That we actually live out the truth of God's word in our lives. We're not living a lie. See, the, the, the opposite of structural integrity would be to have a stage that's built out of thin, thin, thin wood that would not hold anything, and then you put carpet, put brand new carpet over it. And so the carpet looks good, it looks beautiful, but when you go to walk on it, the only thing that's going to hold you up is the carpet. That's the opposite of structural integrity. It looks good on the outside, but underneath where the strength is really required, there's nothing there. In our lives, God requires a a character integrity that we're living in front of people what is true and our lives are consistently true. In other words, God is, is, is working in every part of our life. We don't have to hide stuff in the closet because it is it's not consistent with our Christian character is that we have an open book. So he says, you have upheld me because of my integrity. He speaks of the fact that when we come to know the Lord, we begin to walk in ways and it displays in our life a sound character. Now, let me talk about what's consistent with this. You notice he didn't say, I have no sin at all in my life. In fact, he started off in verse 4, says, be gracious to me because I am a sinner. So part of this integrity is this humility to recognize who we are and our need of God. And so a person that's, that, that has sound integrity, he, he removes the old fake new rug that's, that's made to hide things and says, Lord, build me up right. I don't care about this new rug going to be making me look good. I want to be right for real. And so he lives in that life. I want to be real. I want to have a relationship with God that is true, that is honest, that's consistent with his word. And I see that I have that. And when I see that there's sin in my life, I say, God, forgive me, cleanse me of that sin. 
Heal me, he says in verse 4, for I have sinned against you. He doesn't just hide his sin and not deal with it. He absolutely deals with his sin in the right way. What does he do? He runs to God. We can run and hide our sin. That's what Adam and Eve did when they sinned in the garden. They, they saw God coming and they went and hid. But the psalmist is saying, no, Lord, I know you know. And here I am, I'm running to you. Because I know you are a gracious God. I'm not going to play games and act like I'm not something that I am. I have the humility to admit my sin to come running to you and plead for your grace. And when we carry out that in our lives, we have character, integrity. We know God is, is working in our lives. He continues to work in our lives. show integrity then when we acknowledge our sin, when we cry out to God for his grace, verse 4, when we turn from our sin to God, and we continue turning from sin. Look at the end of verse 4. He says, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 5, my enemies say to me in malice, I want to look at verse 3 is what I want to look at. <clears throat> or verse 2. The, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He, he is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. He turns to God and says, this is how you sustain your people. You do not give him up. He's not going to be defeated by his enemies. Now he's admitted that his enemies have come in. They said bad things about him. They're troubling him. But in the end he says... God doesn't give me over to those enemies. So he has turned to God and he sees God working on an ongoing basis in his life. Isn't that encouraging? We live in a fallen world. We have stuff that's happening to us that makes it difficult. God wants us to run to him. God wants us in, in a community of people. What I mean by community, a group of people, this church. God wants us to make a group of ourselves that delight in him, that run to him for his help and his work and see him working out in our lives. God wants us to open ourselves up with each other, encouraging each other as we walk with the Lord. That our challenge is to trust God in the midst of the things that's happening to us right now and to see how God is going to work. God wants us to be encouraged to know that we trust him, that he's already told us that the victory is ours. He didn't guarantee us that we're all going to be millionaires in this world. He didn't guarantee us that we'd never get sick. He didn't guarantee us that we won't deal with death, loved ones in our own. He guarantees that he is faithful, that he gives victory over all those things, including death. Think about it. So, well, he gives victory over death, and I don't ever have to die. No, that, that doesn't mean that. What it means is he gives us victory of death. How did he do that? By the death of his own son, so that my death then, even my death is insignificant. It simply ushers me into the presence of God. But he says at the end of this, set me in verse 12 you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever that doesn't wait till eternity to start that starts right now you're in the presence of god you enjoy his his protection and his blessing and that is forever god gives us victory over death even though we have to die god gives us victory over death even though we may face death. Christ faced death for us. And we have the hope of eternal life because of what Christ has done. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the challenge. We thank you for the comfort. In this walk with you, teach us how we are to run to you and turn to you. Teach us how to appreciate your graciousness, that we might be gracious 
to others. Teach us how to be humble, not phony, but humble, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging you as our Savior and who we are in you, giving us the patience and the graciousness to deal with those who don't know and don't care who we are. Teach us and build within us integrity so that we face our struggles. We can have victory over victory after victory in our lives. Speak to hearts right now, Lord. We might, in response to this message, we might say and practice that we acknowledge our sin and we run to you. You are our help. You are our only help. We need you. We run to you. We plead for your grace in our lives. I pray for that one here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior. Maybe they're, they're, they're understanding for the first time that they need to develop that relationship with you. Help them to understand that you're ready for them. You simply want them to acknowledge that they're a sinner, that they absolutely need you, and that they turn to your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for their sin, and they trust in that as a payment for their sin. And they take you at your word that you give eternal life to those who trust in Jesus. And that their lives will be forever changed. They will belong to you. And they will have a desire to live and walk with you, with your people. Is there anyone who is making this decision today, Lord, I pray that you would help them to make that decision and to make it known to us here today so we can pray for them and bring them to be a part of this fellowship in this church. While your heads are still bowed, I'm going to ask my wife if she would join me. In the back, I'm going to ask Brother Cliff Hills if he'd close us in a word of prayer. We'll be there to greet and welcome you.